I'm Timothy Putnam, and I'll be your host for the next hour. Each week we gather right here to explore the foundations of our faith, to look at the implications of our faith on our daily lives, so that together you and I can prepare to live outside the walls. There's something about catastrophe, about uh, tragedy, about a real crisis that just arrests our attention. People are always suffering. Every day someone uh, loses a home, uh, either due to a flood, maybe it's a, we had a flood in our home several years ago that was just uh, from bad plumbing, right? Every day someone loses a job or loses a loved one. Every day there's, there's some kind of suffering and pain within our own circle of influence, within just the very people who live right around us. But there's something about just suffering writ large, like we've seen with Hurricane Harvey down in Texas, uh, like we're seeing right now with Hurricane Irma uh, and right along Florida and the outlying islands. Uh, we're seeing it in, in Nepal and India and Bangladesh with the, the, the monsoon rains. We see this immense suffering and we are compelled to act. Uh, last week we gave you a number of charities that you could help directly uh, help the people there in Texas. Of course, now we have that same need going on in other parts of the world as well. And there's something about a tragedy that draws our attention. It, it sharpens our focus. You may experience this in your own life as well. You, you're, maybe you have uh, some minor aches and pains or just general discomfort, but all of a sudden you're snapped to attention when maybe the tooth gives you a sharp pain instead of a dull pain, right? All of a sudden, we're compelled to act. All of a sudden, all of our attention rushes to that place in our body to protect it and to, uh, to make sure that it's taken care of. We call up the doctor. We, we do whatever we need to do to stop that immense pain. And I think that we need to take the opportunity today as we're living in the midst of unmitigated tragedies all around us uh, to rush to, to the aid of those who are suffering, to realize that they are part of us. They are part of our body, uh, whether they are part of the body of Christ, uh, which then we have a, really a special responsibility, or whether they are just part of the human family. And because of that, because they are made in the image of God, because they bear his likeness, we need to be rushing to their aid. We need to be really the hands and the feet of Christ. And we've heard that before. I mean, you've probably heard a song about it somewhere on, uh, on Christian radio somewhere that we are the hands and the feet of Christ. Maybe there's a, a hymn in, uh, in one of the the songbooks that you have at church, that you've heard something along those lines. And yet I want you to, to wipe aside the, uh, the musical settings of that and really pay attention to what that would mean if we are the tangible incarnation of the presence of Christ in the world, right? What would that mean? Wouldn't it mean that we would go out and do the things that Christ did? Wouldn't it mean that we would go out and, uh, and pray for the sick and comfort the, the, the dying and, 
and to be there as really living out these corporal works of mercy uh, on behalf of Christ, not only because we are ambassadors of Christ and we are acting as Christ, not only because we're his body, the body of Christ, acting on uh, the will, right? The, we have something in our, in our intellect, personally, that we, we formulate an idea, we formulate uh, a will, our will begins, and then the body acts. Well, the will of God, the will of Christ, Christ the head of the body, uh, goes about willing, and then it is now his body's job to act on that will. And so, not only are we doing it because we are obeying the will of God, the will of Christ, acting as members of his body, but we're also doing it to Christ. Remember, last week we talked about Matthew 25, uh, whatever you do to the least of these, my brethren, you did it to me. And so here we have people who are in immense suffering. And we don't just have people, we have Jesus, Jesus Christ in the poor, Jesus Christ in the suffering, and we go to meet him. Yes, we go to meet him at Mass, and we, we encounter his presence in a very profound sacramental way through the Eucharist. We encounter him in a very profound way through adoration, right? Eucharistic adoration. But we also encounter him in a profound way in the isolated, in the downtrodden, in the ostracized, in the outcast, in the sick, in those who are currently experiencing crisis. And this is what it means for us to be a people who live outside the walls, like the show uh, is titled. The reason that we spend so much time here on this show looking at the implications of our faith is because we meet Christ outside the walls. Yes, we meet him at Mass, but even more so, we meet him in the people who need him, right? I know that that may not make a whole lot of sense, but we serve a God of paradox. We meet Christ in the poor. We meet Christ in the isolated. And so go out and find him wherever you can. Go out and find Christ this week. And remember that, yes, there are some massive things going on. There are some things that need our attention as the body of Christ, Uh, hurricanes and uh, and much, much more, both uh, external disasters and internal crises. You also have people who are just living the everyday uh, hurricane of their life. Maybe they've lost a job or uh, maybe they've lost a spouse or maybe uh, their, their children are living away from the faith or some personal crisis. And in them, as we serve them, we serve Christ. It doesn't just have to be these big, immense crises that we can't get our our head around. There are people who are living this right in our midst. And so today we're going to be talking about a very different kind of crisis. We talked about hurricanes last week, and yes, it's still pressing and it's still present, uh, but we're going to talk about something different. Today we're going to be talking about the, uh, the immigration executive order that ended DACA, the Deferred, uh, deferred Action for Childhood Arrivals. And this, this is 
uh, about people who came into the United States without documentation when they were under the age of 16, when they were children. They did not have the ability to exercise their own will. They were following the will of their parents, and they came into the United States. And because of their status as uh, a person without documentation, now they have no way uh, to, to enter into a regularized situation uh, with their immigration status. There's just, there's no pathway for them. You can't get there from here. And so whatever your opinions of the way that, that this executive order from President Obama, DACA, as it's called, whatever your opinions are of the way that that came into being, now we still have an issue. Now we still have people who are being held to account for the choices of someone else. And it's something that's, uh, it's pressing. It's something that is uh, incredibly uh, disconcerting. It is a crisis it, along the same lines of the damage that a hurricane would do, taking away your livelihood, you know, taking away your place of work, taking away your home, taking away potentially your family. Well, that's what this threatens to do in about six months if, we, if Congress doesn't act. This is a serious situation for people who are members of our body, both in the fact that they are many of them. Uh, they are baptized Catholics who are receiving the sacraments right next to you. Maybe they're sitting next to you on Sunday and you don't even know it. But also because these are people who are made in the image of God and who have uh, certain dignity and certain rights that are God-given and not uh, granted by the government. So this is a touchy topic because it touches on political policy, and yet this is not a political topic. This is a moral topic. This is a topic that flows directly out of our faith. And the bishops are speaking with near unanimity on this point, and, and I think that that's something we should pay attention to. You know, a lot of people think, well, the bishops are they're, they're liberal. Well, you say that maybe, uh, until you get them talking on uh, the dignity of the unborn. Then you have a whole different subset of people who are going to say that the, the, all the bishops care about is conservatism. And, and I think that the fact that they have detractors on both sides should point us to the reality, which lies in between, that our faith makes us all uncomfortable. It draws us to conclusions that political parties uh, don't come to. And so here we are stuck in the middle uh, with our faith. Our faith is drawing us to look at things uh, in a different manner than simply the party line. So when we come back, we're going to be talking with Dr. Sam Rocha. He's a friend of mine and has a lot invested in this specific issue. Uh, we're going to take a look at what the church says about it. We're going to take a look uh, about what philosophy says about it. It's going to be a conversation you're not going to want to miss Join the conversation over on Facebook.com slash Step Outside the Walls. On Twitter, the handle's at Outside the Walls. And talk to me about what you think. I really want to know. I'm also going to post some articles that I think are really helpful. Go over and join the conversation. We'll be right back right after this. You're listening to Outside the Walls. Welcome back to Outside the Walls, where we explore the foundations and the implications of our faith on our daily lives. 
I'm your host, Timothy Putnam, and today we're talking with Dr. Samuel Rocha. He's the assistant professor of the philosophy of education at the University of British Columbia in Vancouver. And if all that sounds just a little bit too highfalutin, we'll just say that uh, he is a phenomenal phenomenologist and folk art connoisseur, my friend and Twitter gadfly, Sam Rocha. Sam, thanks for being here today. Thank you so much. That's a that's a really nice intro. <laughs> we met uh, just in this manner over uh, over an interview. Oh, a couple of years ago, as we were talking about immigration, uh, I put it out there that I wanted to talk about it and asked a couple of people who should I who should I interview, and your name was the one that came to the top of the list pretty quickly. Uh, and since that time, we've had uh, an ongoing uh, relationship through the Pathios Network, uh, where we both worked for a while. And uh, just interactions on social media. Um, and didn't expect, I and mean, we've talked about a couple of things. I've had you on the show a few times. Uh, I didn't expect that we would come back around to this topic. Uh, and yet here we find ourselves, because this week we learned uh, that President Trump is ending uh, DACA, the Deferred Action for Childhood Arrivals, in about six months. One of the things I want to start off talking with you about, Sam, is this idea, I think, in culture, in the, in the circles that I've generally walked in, that immigration writ large is a monolith. And we can apply the same set of, of uh, principles to all the questions of immigration and just treat it as one thing. So talk to me about if that's true, first of all, and then second of all, if not, how do we how should we approach the different variations of immigration? Well, thank you for that. Um, it's, um, it's, it's, it's not just untrue. It's untrue at every possible level of analysis. So if we go for a very moral analysis, you'll notice that there's no sense from moral theology to moral philosophy, no sense of, uh, um, an idea of, 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 of deliberation over real actions that doesn't take into mind con context, conscience, the habitual nature of sin. I mean, we, we can go on and on. When we get all the way down to the law, though, imagine prosecuting the, the crime of murder in the same way for involuntary manslaughter all the way, all the way to first-degree murder. Mm -hmm. be a, there would be something deeply unjust about that. Our legal system isn't stupid. It recognizes the distinction between someone who has intent to kill someone and kills them in a gruesome and slow and intentional manner and someone who's driving too fast and isn't paying attention and, and, and hits somebody and they eventually die. Mm -hmm. um, so it's simply to, to, to not try to be too hyperbolic about it, but it's idiotic to think from – a question of morality at a theological or philosophical level, all the way to a question of legality, that there's any reason to think that we can imagine immigration from refugees to immigrants to the different sorts of geopolitical questions that emerge from the exact kind of immigrants or refugees we're talking about to the particular period, to the particular context, to think that we can wrap that all into just some, you know, bumper stipper kind of thinking. It's, it's just absurd. Mm -hmm. So here we have a specific action, a specific uh, context in these childhood arrivals. And these are uh, people who are now adults, but who arrived in the United States before the age of 16 and have lived their entire life uh, from that point until this, knowing only the United States is home. And yet because of their status, because of their parents' choice, not their own, but because of their parents' choice, they are now unable 
to, uh, to enter into the proper channels to regularize their situation. And so that's the reason that we have uh, the deferred action, the DACA, because we don't yet have uh, a legal pathway. So talk a little bit about uh, your personal experience with some of these, uh, some of these adults who grew up here uh, and, and how this action could potentially affect their lives. Well, yeah, I mean, this is a specific context. And in my case, it's a very concrete context. And it's a context that, to be completely honest, I wasn't, I didn't grow up as aware of. I understood definitely the questions of legal and illegal immigration and of, you know, I grew up in the borderlands. So no one grows up there and doesn't know about this. I wasn't quite as, um, uh, I wasn't quite as aware of this until I had a particular student walk into my office whenever I was uh, uh, a young uh, professor right out of grad school at Wabash College. And this particular student um, was uh, came to the United States when he was three years old. And uh, he attended public school. He was the valedictorian of his class in high school. And um, he wasn't able to apply for any federal grants or funding, obviously. Um, but he was recruited very heavily um, based on his academic performance at private colleges, which are entitled because of their private status to offer separate funding packages that are not affiliated or attached to the National Pell Grant or things like that. Mm-hmm. And he accepted a full ride scholarship from this small college, which recruited him just because he was he was a, a, a he was a very bright student coming out of high school, as they would recruit any other student. He wanted to be a teacher. Mm-hmm. And it turned out that in order to be a teacher, you have to do a practicum. And in order to complete a practicum, you have to uh, submit your social security number, have a background check and things like that. And whenever that became the case, it became obvious to him that he wasn't uh, able to go through those steps. And um, for him, it, it, it kind of broke his heart. He was good at academics. Teaching made sense to him. Um, he was – I mean he's as smart as one could ever dream of having a student you know, in that position. And uh, I was made aware of the position by him coming to me in in private and, and, and telling me a situation. And as I began to dig, I realized that we had quite a few students who specifically because of the match of their very high performance in academics and the colleges seeking out of those students and their inability to attend the large state institutions, that there was a particular match going on that we had a small cluster of these students on our campus. We're talking today with Dr. Sam Rocha. And so, Sam, you've interacted with these students personally. Uh, a number of people I've heard say, uh, well, these, these folks just ought to go home and go through the process uh, properly. Uh, but I, I'm, I'm curious about this because a lot of these students, uh, this is home. There is nowhere else for them to go. As you've interacted with, with these people who have benefited from DACA, uh, what's been your experience? What's their thought process? What are they looking at in terms of their options? Uh, what do they think when they look at the political climate? Uh, just give us a, a picture of that. I got to know these students intimately. I got to hear their stories. I got to hear their situations. I got to hear all the dreams that they were already deferring and that they were already not doing Um and I got to realize that, you know, the, just the fear they live in uh, personally and the fact that they were always also very practical. They were saying, well, I could perhaps go and attend UNAM uh, in Mexico um, where my, my legal status is and my Spanish is kind of okay. It's not great, but I could pick up enough Spanish to probably do well there academically. But the exchange rate on that is I wouldn't be able to come back into the U.S. And so I'd have to basically sign off on seeing my family for maybe four to six years. 
And some of them were actually considering doing this, right? Mm -hmm. So I think when people think of this, they think of these irrationally recalcitrant uh, people who aren't reasonable and who just want this and that for nothing or what have you. But here I, I sat down with quite a few people working through case scenarios of different national contexts they could go to, uh, different resources they could avail themselves of. And they were very aware of the law and they were following, of course, the political situation very closely. And um, of course, it goes without saying that none of them were criminals or anything of that sort. It's sad that one has to bring that up. But mm -hmm. um, these are the people who never committed any crime, any harm, never willfully decided to transgress any border or anything at all, who are living with the consequences of that choice made by their guardians, by their parents, certainly, uh, and who are the most vulnerable because they need to – because ostensibly they're culturally Americans and they're living beside us and working beside us, yet they're not fully enfranchised citizens and yet they're not guaranteed uh, the securities that were guaranteed, the rights were guaranteed, uh, and they live under, especially in this administration, a particular set of threats. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, so I would challenge anyone, frankly, on the general subject, but in particular on this particular subject, I would ch challenge anyone to find some sort of, of reasonable uh, um, process under which these people in particular, these dreamers as they're called. Um, and by the way, I don't like dreamers because they shouldn't have to dream, mm -hmm. right? This is all they've known. This is their reality. This is their concrete situation. This is, you know, they, they many of them actually don't speak affluent enough or 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 uh, authentic enough Spanish to necessarily even return to becoming functioning Ibero or Latin Americans, you know. Right. Um, these are culturally uh, in every way, uh, these are Americans. And I consider this uh, equal in stature to the kind of situations we find whenever we look at the unwilled uh, uh, arrival of, for instance, black slaves in our history, another dark part of our past. Um, and, and many other cases where we see uh, people who have um, limited access to rights for enfranchisement, but who also have known of the willed abilities to decide their enfranchisement. And I think that applies to refugees under certain cases of duress, in, in other words, as well. So, mm -hmm. so that's that's what I know. It's my experience, and that's how it extends outwards too. You know, this is a topic about which uh, a number of people of goodwill uh, have vastly different opinions. And so what I want to call you to is to listen to your bishops, listen to our bishops uh, and what they have to say. And when our politicians and our bishops don't agree, uh, we should take extra time to examine the words coming out of the mouths of our bishop. Uh, what is the church calling us to? How are we uh, to behave? What implications, what's what this show's all about, what implications does our faith place on us? What responsibilities do we have to help ensure the common good and to help ensure the dignity of every human person. We're talking today with Sam Rocha specifically about this, uh, this conundrum of DACA, the Deferred Action for Childhood Arrivals. Uh, just like these other tragedies recently have called you to act, uh, I, I urge you to be active in this as well, uh, to write your politicians, to listen to your bishops. We'll be right back right after this with more on the topic. You're listening to Outside the Walls.
Welcome back to Outside the Walls, where we explore the foundations and implications of our faith in our daily lives. I'm your host, Timothy Putnam, and today we're talking with Dr. Sam Rocha, Assistant Professor of the Philosophy of Education at the University of British Columbia, uh, when, he, when he isn't using words that are far too large to understand. Uh, he is generally found around a guitar with, uh, with folk music with a couple of friends. He's got a couple of albums out off of Wise Blood Records. You can go check it out. We'll put a link to it on our social media, facebook.com slash step outside the walls. Twitter, the handle is at outside the walls. Got some great stuff you're not going to want to miss. But today we're talking about how we approach the question of, uh, of those people who are brought into the country, into the United States as children before the age of 16, sometimes uh, as infants, sometimes as toddlers, uh, with no will of their own, uh, and are raised here and now are unable to really completely enter into uh, legal status because they don't have anything beforehand. Uh, a lot of people say, well, they need to go back home and get in line, and yet this is home. You know, I, I, I was moved across the country uh, just as far as some of these people traveled. It just so happened that I was within the boundaries of uh, what we come to know as the United States right now, although they, even that concept is fluid, right? We uh, we started out as 13 colonies. Now we're at uh, 50 states and a couple of territories. Uh, and and there's questions about whether some of those territories will become states. So even now, the concept of what is America is in flux. Here I was. I moved across the country. I was born in Kentucky. I moved to West Texas early on through through no fault of my own. And yet I am, if you ask anyone around me, fully Texan. I tell people I'm native. I was just born expatriate. So uh, we're talking today with Sam Rocha uh, about this question because the, the president of the United States has announced that he's going to be ending what's known as the deferred action for childhood arrivals. And I want to talk to you, Sam, about Ezekiel 18, where the prophet says, uh, there's, a pro- there's a proverb that you say in Israel that says, uh, the fathers eat sour grapes and the children's teeth are set on edge. In other words, uh, the children have to live with the consequences of their parents. And then he says, but it shall be no more. The father is now responsible for his own sins, and the son shall be responsible for his own sins. And he kind of breaks that out a little bit further. And and this is what the word of the Lord said to the people of, of Israel at that time. And so to me, hearing that and seeing this issue, gosh, back in, I think, 2010 or 2011 is when it first came on my radar— is when I realized that if we uh, continue to to behave in a way that uh, punishes the children for the sins of their fathers, then we are the ones who are being unjust. One of the things that makes this to me so serious, and that reading this this passage in particular from Ezekiel awakens one's conscience to, is that there's at a deeper perhaps level, there is a theological relationship between the sin of the father and the son. I mean, in this sense, we're sons of Adam, mm-hmm. daughters of Eve. And um, I think I think there is a legitimate theological question, which is, as those Christians who have redeemed, been redeemed by the blood of Christ for the sins of, you could say, the father, right, of humanity, mm-hmm. as those who have been uh, uh, led by a new Eve. Um, what business do we have in our hearts and our souls and our consciences as as Catholics who believe this and as Christians who who commune in this belief as well? 
what business do we have doling out justice on terms that are so contrary to the laws and teachings and revelations of mercy that we have in our faith? Mm-hmm. You know, I, I was always struck as a kid. You know, I, I read I read scripture largely because I wasn't allowed to read just about anything else growing up. So, <laughs> I. Uh, I drank pretty deeply from the imaginative well of biblical literature, and um, it's not hard even for a five-year-old to tell that the story of salvation history in the Old Testament is essentially about God creating rules or boundaries and 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 the people of God uh, breaking them, uh, and breaking them often very very much willfully. And God finding a way to extend his mercy to them again and again and again. And there's this kind of tragic nature of this, but at no point in, in this in this history does anyone, uh, do you ever find an end point? And this is where salvation history comes to its center in Christ, uh, where Christ redeems all. And there's a lot of talk about whether Jesus was actually a refugee or whether Jesus was actually an immigrant or an illegal immigrant. But here's something that anyone who reads Luke's infancy narrative has to admit, I think. Jesus was carried from Bethlehem to Egypt under the persecution of Herod as a child Mm -hmm. by his parents. And one would have to think, I, I believe, that one of the reasons was to guarantee their child's safety. Mm-hmm. Joseph and Mary were not being persecuted by Herod. Right. Herod was didn't care about who Mary was or about who Joseph was. He was after their child. If you are willing to place in a similar way as we've done to the Old Testament and the New Testament, the situation that in particular dreamers or people who are affected by DACA are in, these are people who are brought by their parents here, willfully by their parents, largely because of the promise they see of being able to bring them into this country. And in many cases, the parents who we kind of evade for legal and, 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 and analytical reasons on the philosophical analysis, but if we bring them into the fold, these parents are often willing to give up their entire life, their, 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 their livelihoods, their communities, everything they know to bring their children into a strange and foreign land where they believe they will be safer, mm-hmm. where they will have a um, uh, more of a guarantee. And by the way, Mexicans and Latin Americans aren't the first people to start doing this. Not many people realize that some of the very first wetbacks were actually Irish men, mostly men, who were jump coming here as stowaways on ships, and they heard that at Ellis Island you got either recruited into the army or got your name changed. So they would jump and swim the rest of the way. Mm-hmm. to the United States under a similar kind of duress, under a similar kind of uh, of situation in, in that place. And at every generation, we find a people coming here under these similar terms. And I think that whether it's Ezekiel or Luke, the Christian, the Catholic, has a, a, a biblical imagination and a biblical literature that, 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 that demands them at perhaps a deeper level than just the philosophical or theological, you know, analytical apparatus. We're talking today with Sam Rocha, and something I think we need to bring to the forefront as well is that we are Catholics. We're not American Catholics. We are Catholics, Catholic meaning universal, and these are our people. These people bear the image of God. They bear the face of Christ. Uh, the, The reading we had last week, that whatever we do to the least of these, the most vulnerable among us, 
that we do to Christ. And, and it's easy to think of when we're looking at uh, Mother Teresa or St. Peter Claver, whose feast day is today, or or any of these others who are, are dealing with the poorest of the poor or the slave. It's harder when we construct these... these um, quadrants to place people in. Well, there's the them and there's the us. Uh, and so they're over there and, and I just need to focus on these poor among us and not so much those who I put in that box. No, there's just us, right? There is no them and us. We are called to share the love of God with the mm. whole world and specifically with those who share in our baptism and who share in the sacraments, specifically in a, in, a, in a more precise way with them, we're to be sharing the love of God and living a life of hospitality and, and not giving in to these nativist ideas that somehow we belong not to the kingdom of heaven, but to the kingdom of the United States. Yeah, I mean, it's, uh, to me, it's a huge um, it's a huge issue with respect to where our, our allegiances lie. Um, you know, the funny thing for me is, uh, um, my experience of one's allegiances has always been kind of confused. You know, I'm, I'm a, I'm what they call a Texican. So I was, uh, born in Brownsville, Texas, right on the edges of the Mexican border. And I lived part of my life in Mexico, um, where I was painfully aware that I wasn't Mexican. And I've also lived my life in the United States and at times have been painfully aware of not being, uh, considered at least, uh, fully American. But one of the things that always gave me in my kind of weird ethnic uh, national experience a kind of solace was that it also became clear to me as I grew up that as a Catholic growing up in the Bible Belt, I'm sure you'll be familiar with this, <laughs> there was something about my Catholicism that didn't quite make me American. That is to say, I didn't fit into the kind of Protestant Americana of of the early, fairly deist, uh, Protestant um, uh, uh, forefathers, and within the Bible Belt, uh, uh, my 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 departed brothers and sisters of many uh, different faiths were not shy at all about letting me know that I wasn't saved or that my church was, and I and I affiliated myself to the Irishmen swimming across Ellis Island on religious terms, so I was mm-hmm. able to see that 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 stowaway as my my brother because we were both Catholics and then the Italians that came later. And I was able to to snicker at the fact that, you know, Los Angeles is actually named after Our Lady of the Angels and that Sacramento is named after the the Blessed Sacrament. And isn't it funny that that Spanish preserves a a sort of Catholic sensibility here. And I think it's important that we remember that our citizenship is first and foremost in the kingdom of heaven, that our citizenship here, yes, it matters. And yes, there's something we're grateful for it. But first and foremost, our citizenship, our neighbors are defined because we belong to Christ, because we're members of the kingdom of heaven. Well, there's much more right after this break. We've been talking with Dr. Sam Rocha about specifically DACA, the Deferred Action for Childhood Arrivals. Uh, When we come back, we're going to be taking a look at Scripture and a document of the church. Join us over at facebook.com slash step outside the walls. On Twitter, the handle's at outside the walls. Let's get a discussion going. Let's explore the faith together. We'll be right back.
Welcome back to Outside the Walls, where we explore the foundations and implications of our faith on daily life. I'm your host, Timothy Putnam. And boy, have we had a topic today. We've been talking with Dr. Sam Rocha about a very specific, narrow focus on immigration. Not immigration writ large, but specifically on the, the deferred action for childhood arrivals, which uh, was a, an executive order that was just rescinded. Uh, and there's now six months left uh, for there to be something put in place before it expires. Now, this is what I want to encourage you to do. I want to encourage you to listen to the bishops on this. Uh, go read them. Don't read about what they said. Go and read what the bishops are saying. Uh, and really, you know, if if you're a little bit skeptical of other bishops, well, go look at what your favorite bishop is saying. Go look at what your, your specific bishop is saying uh, about this topic, because it's one that has just immense import for us uh, on how we treat the stranger and the alien, how we treat the one who is in our midst, who all they know, all they know from their whole growing up years is this as home. Uh, and so now there's the potential uh, there, you know, everything is nebulous right now, but there's the potential that this could really end up sending them away from the only home that they've ever known. Uh, I want you to keep in mind the fact that we've just experienced Hurricane Harvey, where people have been displaced and everything that they had was lost. Uh, we're in the middle right now of Hurricane Irma happening in Florida, where people are being displaced and losing family and losing uh, home and losing everything that they've known. And I want you to put this, uh, this situation with DACA in that light of people who potentially will be displaced and will lose everything uh, and, and really give the same level of empathy uh, to these now young adults as you would give to someone who lives down in Texas or in Florida and has been affected by the storm. Well, if you missed any part of the show or you want to share it with someone, don't worry. The whole show is archived over at OutsideTheWalls.com. While you're there, click on the little Patreon link up in the, the navigation bar because there's an extra segment with Sam. Uh, we sat down and, and pulled off a Tiny Desk concert where uh, he got out his guitar and sat in front of a mic and uh, we did an extra little segment with uh, a never-before-heard song that he wrote, uh, and, and I'd love for you to hear it. So go over to click on that Patreon link, and you'll see there uh, that I give extra content every week to people who support the show. Uh, for as little as $2 a month, you can get exclusive content, uh, and, and part of that is weekly unbroadcast segments. You'll see there's a number of different levels where you can support financially the show. And there's also a number of different reward levels where you can get great content. Uh, and so I encourage you to go take a look because as soon as you become a supporter, you don't just get the, the stuff coming out in the future. You also get all the backlogs of all the unbroadcast segments, all the extra content that we've ever put up there. Uh, it's, uh, I think it's a great deal. I hope you'll take a look at it. Today is the Feast of St. Peter Claver, and he's the patron saint of racial reconciliation. He was a, a missionary who worked with the slaves who were being brought over, went out of his way to, to find them as soon as they got off the boat to come and to minister Christ to them. And so we ask for his intercession as we are in the midst of uh, continuing issues where the dignity of human persons is, uh, is often in question, and very often that 
is because of their race or the color of their skin or uh, their legal status. And so we ask for his intercession uh, today. Today's reading comes from the gospel uh, of the gospel of Luke. And we read, while Jesus was going through a field of grain on a Sabbath, his disciples were picking the heads of grain, rubbing them in their hands and eating them. Some Pharisees said, why are you doing what is unlawful on the Sabbath? Jesus said to them in reply, Have you not read what David did when he and those who were with him were hungry? How he went into the house of God and took the bread of offering, which only the priests could lawfully eat, ate of it, and shared it with his companions? Then he said to them, The Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. And that reading comes from the Gospel of Luke. And I think that it's very uh, poignant for us today because it, it shows us, I hope, uh, that there are some things which are uh, legal and illegal, which are not moral and immoral, because we know that Christ never sinned, and yet he did what was unlawful in this case. Uh, there's an article that I have posted before on social media. I'm going to do it again. Uh, it comes from Dr. Jeff Miris at catholicculture.org, and the title of that essay is Illegals Are Not Immorals. And I, I think that that's something that really shaped my opinion on the topic, as well as probably about four other articles around that same time and around that same topic. Uh, but it, it's important for us to remember that just because there is a law written does not mean that law is just, does not mean that law is correct. Even if the, the topic of law is good, for instance, I think that it is good that a nation has uh, laws about immigration on the books. Uh, I don't uh, subscribe to the idea of open borders. And yet, we have to make sure that those laws are just, that they are uh, recognizing and honoring the dignity of the human person and uh, honoring and seeking to uphold the common good. Now, our reading of a church document today is going to be a little different. Uh, we're not going to read a, a document from church history, from a church father or church doctor. We're not even going to read a, a recent document from the Vatican, like uh, the, the council documents or, or things like that that we've read in the past. No, today we're going to read a statement by the bishops about this topic we've been talking about today. And since this show is primarily aired on the Oklahoma Catholic Broadcasting Network, we're going to be, even though many, many bishops have spoken about this, even though the USCCB has spoken about this, we're going to be reading this statement from, uh, from Archbishop Coakley and Bishop Condorla, because these are your bishops. And I want you to hear what they have to say. Based on reports that the White House will end the Deferred Action for Childhood Arrivals DACA program in six months, we urge President Trump and members of Congress, specifically the Oklahoma delegation, to pursue legislation that strengthens the program or provides legal status for youth hoping for a brighter future. At the heart of Catholic social teaching is the moral obligation to protect the life and dignity of every human being, particularly the most vulnerable, which includes our youth. These young people, who are benefiting from DACA, were brought to the United States by their parents, whose desire was to provide their children with hope, opportunity, and safety. Catholic bishops in the United States have long supported DACA, and they will continue to support it. While DACA provides no legal status or path to citizenship, it does provide recipients with a temporary reprieve from deportation and employment authorization for legal work opportunities in the United States. 
An estimated 800,000 young people in the United States have benefited from the DACA program. Through our parishes and through the Catholic charities of the Archdiocese of Oklahoma City and the Diocese of Tulsa and Eastern Oklahoma, we have had the privilege of meeting and working with these outstanding individuals who are very much a part of who we are as an Oklahoma community. They are contributors to our economy, veterans of our military, academic standouts in our universities, seminaries, and leaders in our parishes. Legislation that ensures these young people can continue to work, study, and be protected from deportation is important to the stability of our communities. However, a decision to end this program without a legislative fix, such as the DREAM Act, would turn our nations back on immigrant youth who are seeking to reach the fullness of their God-given potential and to fulfill the promise of gratefully giving back to the only country most have ever known. Such a decision would place DACA youth at risk for deportation from the United States. The administration has an extraordinary opportunity to demonstrate, both now and to future generations, our nation's spirit of generosity and compassion. We hope and pray President Trump and Congress can transcend the partisan rancor to strengthen the DACA program or provide legal status for thousands of Oklahoma youth and hundreds of thousands of young people in our nation. And that's signed by the Most Reverend Paul S. Coakley, Archbishop of Oklahoma City, and the Most Reverend David A. Condorla, Bishop of Tulsa and Eastern Oklahoma. These are your bishops, and this is what they have to say. Uh, and I hope that you will hear their encouragement of Congress, their encouragement of the president, and take it to heart and begin to do the same. Uh, reach out to your, to your representatives, uh, write letters, make phone calls, and stand up as a, as a corporal act of mercy. Stand up for those people who have no other option, those who are vulnerable, those who cannot stand up for themselves. In the same way that you have just transcended generosity in response to these storms that we've seen in recent days, recognize that this storm has similar destructive capacity uh, and, and speak up for those who have no one else to speak for them. And once you've written the letters, and once you've engaged in that conversation, turn your attention to prayer, uh, to pray for these people who have been affected by the storms. Uh, not only the, the two hurricanes, but the monsoons, the, the political climate, uh, the, the personal storms that have ravaged people's uh, homes and their lives. Uh, lift up people who are in the midst of crisis and tragedy. And maybe that's you. Maybe you're in the middle of a storm that you don't know how to weather. Come over to social media, facebook.com slash step outside the walls on Twitter. The handle's at outside the walls. Uh, comment, uh, just as much as you're comfortable with, comment your prayers, your prayer requests, and let the community of people who listen to this show with you, uh, let them lift you up in prayer, and I will lift you up in prayer. That's all the time we have for this week, uh, but let's pray together this week. All right? Outside the Walls is brought to you by the generous contributions of Drs. Michael and Julie Hyland and all the other contributors on our Patreon page. To find out how you can become a supporter, go to OutsideTheWalls.com, click that Patreon link. Until next week, may the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make His face to shine upon you and be gracious unto you. May the Lord lift up His countenance upon you and give you peace. Peace.